Hallelujah. Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. His descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light shines in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come to, to the one who lends generosity and conducts his business fairly. He will never be shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident, trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured. He will not fear. In the end, he will look into triumph on his foes. He distributes freely to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked one will see it and be angry. He will gnash his teeth in despair, and the desire of the wicked leads to ruin. Thank you, TJ. Hey, how are you guys doing? Yeah, okay. Just okay. That's all right. Well, I am excited that you guys are here. Thank you for being a part of our church this morning. Uh, my name is Jacob. I'm the, the teaching and vision pastor here. And uh, man, just looking forward to uh, just continuing our time together uh, in, in worship through the reading of God's word and just hearing that wash over us this morning. Um, we are uh, finishing up our series today on the Summer of Psalms. And uh, I tell you what, this has been, uh, man, what an encouragement to hear uh, some of you to receive messages or uh, just to interact with you on how you've been doing as you uh, have read through the Psalms. What we did at the beginning of this, uh, this summer is we, uh, we, we handed out a, a summer reading plan to go through all of the Psalms in three months. And, um, and some of you did that, and it's amazing. Some of you did not do it, and uh, if you didn't, and you're like, man, you know what? I would love to try that again. No worries, because next year we're going to do the same thing, so you get another chance. So if you were kind of like, man, I didn't do it, but at least, you know, like, well, it's okay. Maybe never. Uh, guess we're, we're not going to let you off the hook that easily. Um, you will have another chance to read through the entire uh, book of Psalms this summer, uh, of course, you're always willing to pull them open anytime you want. So, uh, but this is one where we did it together as a church. Got to read uh, one every morning, one every evening. And as we read, we pray through those psalms. And so uh, the beauty of that is that as we're praying on the words of the psalms, as a church, we're praying the same things together. And there's power in that when we are praying in unity for the same things, the same hopes and, and heart for our church, for our friends and our families, uh, for our neighbors, for our enemies, even as you probably found in the Psalms, that there is a lot of attention and discussion and direction put towards your enemies. You probably didn't even realize how much of, of David's attention is focused on that. And yet this gives us this amazing opportunity to reach out with compassion for those who are, are different or, or who we even struggle with. And so, um, again, next year, we're going to do this again, and you're going to have even more chances to read through this. So, uh, next week, we're going back into our series on the kingdom of heaven, where we're tracing through uh, Jesus' teaching on um, 
in, in Matthew 5 through 7. And uh, I, I think our psalm today is going to actually help launch us in really well into what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 112. Psalm 112. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way there. Um, We're also going to have it up here on the screen. This is right in the middle of a set of songs called uh, the Hallelujah Psalms. And they're called that because the first word of each psalm is this compound Hebrew word, Hallelujah. Halal meaning praise or admiration, and Yah being this shortened version of the name Yahweh. It's like a nickname, I guess. So praise to God, praise to the Lord, praise to Yahweh. So Psalm 112 is this song that is all about the blessings that come to the one who fears Yahweh and loves to follow wherever he leads. And this can be a problem at the outset when we read this. It can be really challenging to read a passage like this for, because of that one tricky verb at the very beginning. When we consider our relationship with God, there are lots of verbs that we like to use or would prefer to use. We love God. We believe God. We trust God. We enjoy God. But fear God? That, we don't use that one very much. We don't talk very much about how often we fear God. Because if you fear God, at least in our modern English vernacular, if you fear God, then that means what? You have to have something to be afraid of. You have to be afraid of something that he is or that maybe there must be some part that of God that is malicious or volatile within his nature that makes us uneasy or that compels us to do what he says or else. Follow my commands and it will go well with you. If not, ugh, fear. And if God is like that, if God terrifies us somehow, then we would not be wise to run to him. We would be wise to run from him, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense logically when we put all that together? If God is terrifying, then our gut response and reaction would not to be running toward the terrifying thing, but to run away from the terrifying thing, right? That's our nature. It's to run away from what terrifies us. How in the world can you, as Psalm 112 says, fear God and also delight in his commands? 
And this is a major issue within Christianity and particularly in the Old Testament because the New Testament almost never refers to fearing God, at least in the English translations, and yet it's all over the pages of the first half of this book. And so what, what do we do? What do we do? Do we just ignore the fact that it says to fear God? And we just, say, we just focus on all the passages that we're supposed to love God. And so we all just sit around cross-legged in circles and, and sing Kumbaya and read First John. Because that's all about that, right? Do we just ignore the parts of the Bible that say to fear God? Or do we, do we use that fear as a tool to control and to, to provoke and to compel others to get what we need and what we desire? You better watch out. God, have you ever heard the, 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 uh, the, the phrase, God's going to strike you down with lightning? What are we doing in that? We're, we're, we're instilling a fear, a terror, a terror of God that what you might be doing, we rarely, I mean, sometimes we do, if we're honest with yourselves, do we refer to God striking us down. But most often we're referring to God striking somebody else down as a result, right? It's a really a great way of us saying, if you do the right things, you'll be okay. If you don't do the right things, watch out, because lightning bolts will fall from the sky, as if God is the Greek god Thor. And I don't think he is, so I, there's an issue there, right? But, but already, we, we can tend to either ignore the Bible's use of, of this word fear, or we can abuse the Bible's use of the word fear, and either way, we're in an unhealthy relationship with the God of the Bible. The reality, though, is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means the God of the Old Testament is a God to be feared, and so is the God of now. He is also a God to be loved and to be believed and to be trusted and to be enjoyed. And so my prayer is that as we go through this psalm that we're going to recover a better sense of, of what it means to fear God. That we don't all, not only see him as a God to be feared, but that that fear, a healthy fear, would also lead us to encounter the true happiness that is promised to us as we fear him. So let's pray and we're going to jump right into Psalm 112, Father, we just ask that you would reveal yourself to us in the words of this passage, that we would see truly how you long to lead us and guide us and show us who you are, and that as you show us who you are, that would compel us to respond not out of, not out of being forced to, but that it just... We cannot do anything but that. That every fiber, every ounce of our being pulls us in, draws us in to walk in your ways, to know who you are, to be changed and transformed as we grow in relationship with you. And so, Father, we just thank you for 
how you're about to speak to us. It's the name of your son we, we say this. Amen. All right. Let's just read verse 1. Let's set the context for, for where we're going to go today. Hallelujah. Happy is the person who fears Yahweh, the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. Now, most of your translations uh, do not use the word happy. Most of your translations are going to use the word blessed. Blessed is the person who fears the Lord, or blessed, as we like to say in the church, because it's fancier that way. And that's a fine translation as long as you understand what it means to be blessed. And how we mean to use that word has vast implications for how we live because, or, or how we, we utilize religion to advance our purposes or how we treat others. Because if you think that blessed means successful or favored or wealthy, if you think being blessed means having a retirement plan or a summer beach house or a college fund, or if you think being blessed means having a large family or being successful in academics or athletics or business or arts, then your countenance, how you hold yourself, how you present yourself, how you feel about things, has very little to do with your blessedness. It's really about how much you earn, how much other people revere you. It's about your reputation. It's about your material possessions, what you have or what you can do or how other people feel about you is the determining factor to how blessed you might feel at any given point in time, how happy you are. Now, to be sure, just a quick reading of Psalm 112 might initially give you the impression, I mean, what does it say in verses 2 and 3? His descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. So, I mean, clearly our happiness must at least be somehow related to our material value, right? And if it is, then keeping a volatile, terrifying God in our good graces must be worth a little terror now and then, right? Is that how we're supposed to read? The Psalms here. I'm, I'm, not, I'm leading you astray if you're like, yes, for sure, definitely. That is not how you should read this Psalm. See how quickly relationship can turn to religion when you bring in out those sort of mindsets into the Scriptures. So instead of happiness or blessing, maybe try it, try it this way. Let me give you an illustration for how to think of this idea of being blessed. When we first moved to Sacramento uh, six, seven years ago, 
uh, I got my first real sense of city traffic. I hadn't really driven a whole lot in the city. Uh, and if you think Reading is the city, it's not. I know it feels that way sometimes, but it is not the city. Sacramento is barely a city at this point. So, but, but I got my first glimpse into city traffic. Uh, six lanes packed to the gills, thousands of cars that are trudging a few miles, start, stop, start, stop. Everybody's trying to get to work on time, and nobody is succeeding at it at all. Uh, my morning commute was right around a half an hour at minimum to go less than 10 miles. You just got used to that. You listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of audiobooks in the car because you got time, right? So, um, and, and, and that was 30 minutes if I'm lucky. Most of the time, much of the time, uh, when you, are, you get stuck and these cars, just like every, every couple of minutes, there's another on-ramp and more cars keep squeezing into this freeway and you're like, there's no more room for you. You can't come on and yet somehow they find a way. And so, and the way they do this is I keep slowing down further and further behind them. So that's how they find a way onto the freeway. So um, you're, you're, just, you're just watching this and you're looking around, and, and everybody's coming, and there's this feeling that rises up within you of bondage. Where you just start thinking to yourself, I'm going to die here. Right on Highway 80, I'm going to, I'm going to die here. I will never leave this spot ever again. And soon I'm going to run out of podcasts to listen to. And then life will really be over. And so forget making it to work on time. Well, I mean, will I ever see my family again? Like, what's these things start? Will I ever eat again? These things just are running through your mind because it is just an awful situation to be in. And, and what happens when you're in this and you're, you're a second lane from the right and there's just cars as far as the eye can see, what happens is that your eyes start to wander to the left. That just your head starts to tilt and turn over to this magical lane called the carpool lane. And you just sit there and you watch it longingly, achingly over to this side. And vehicles with these small communities of two or more or qualifying electric automobiles are cruising along at full speed, just happily, joyfully, and they're full of bliss and without hesitation. Their ways are just clear and unencumbered and free and timely. And I can't see them really because they're going so much faster than I am, but I just know they're so much happier than I am right now. I just know that. And, and, and while we single Occupant gas guzzlers are just inching along down the road, unable to move even if we wanted to. We're just watching others who have been built to thrive in the urban jungle. That is blessing. That is happiness. It is the spiritual open road, unhindered, unencumbered life, where there is nothing that slows you down, there is nothing that holds you back. You are free exactly as God made you to be. That is blessing. 
So where does the fear of God come into that idea? Because it seems like if God were the one to be feared or terrified of, if we want to use that still, then, then wouldn't that hinder us in our pursuits and in our goals and in our desires? Wouldn't that slow us down? This is often our assumption and why, as human beings, we seek to go our own way. We are afraid. I would suggest to you, though, that, that one, what we are afraid of is not God. The fear that we have is not actually God, but there is an image in our mind that we have been led to believe that is God and is actually not God. But there are also there are two things that we, we must correct even when it comes to this concept of fearing God. First, what is fear? And let me suggest to you that, that God is, the fear of God is not terror, though it may become that. What does the psalmist say? Happy is the person who fears Yahweh, taking great delight in his commands. These are parallel phrases here. Happy is the one who fears God, taking great delight in his commands. To fear God is not to be terrified of God. To fear God is to follow God. Fear is about reverence and respect and awe, not terror. Psalm 111, which is kind of like the, uh, I, I read it somewhere, it's kind of like the uncle to the nephew that is Psalm 112. But Psalm 111 says this, it talks about why God's name is worth fearing. It says his works are great and splendid and majestic. Yahweh is gracious and compassionate. Think about Exodus 34 right there. He provides needs. He remembers promises. Everything he does exudes truth and justice. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. And it says he has sent redemption to his people. Through God, through Yahweh, they find worth and value. And it ends with this poetry down at the bottom. It says, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. To fear Yahweh is to follow Yahweh. To fear God, to revere him and to respect him and to trust him is not about what he can get for you. It's about who he is and what he has already done. We follow because we believe he is worth following because he has proven himself to be a good leader, that his ways are carpool lanes even when our ways are traffic jams. 
The first correction, then, of our assumptions is that the fear is not terror. Fear is following. The second correction is this. Happiness, that sense of thriving or or unhindered life, it may not be the life that you envision for yourself. It is the life that God envisions for you. Blessing is not the idea that God bends to our desires and you get what you want. It's the idea that you bend to God's desires and God gets what he wants. And when you want what God wants, you get what you want. Amen. That absolutely. Amen. Probably the thing that we have our most fear of is not the fact that God will get what he wants and that he wants to bend us towards his will. I think our fear is that we won't get what we want and rather than yielding to him to shape and change our desires, I think we're afraid that God's ways are somehow, we're not ready to give up our own. I think we're most afraid of giving up our own way. This is the thing that makes the Christian and the church a countercultural witness to the rest of the world. Because we do not determine our own happiness. Our country's political trajectory or agenda does not determine our happiness. Our money or lack of it does not determine our happiness. We can fly in the fast lane while others stall out as they go it alone. I had this really cheesy image in my head of of God driving and we're sitting in the passenger side while he drives and that qualifies us for driving in the spiritual carpool lane. But then I thought TJ's going to laugh at me for that and so I didn't say it. So, but I do think it's true, just FYI. But so here's how you know when you are following someone or something other than God. It is when your state of contentment or joy depends on its success. If you need your political party to win the election, then you fear and you follow that party. If you need money to be satisfied, then you fear or follow money. If you need people to think well of you, to be loved, to be fulfilled, then you fear and you follow the desires and dreams of others. And if you need your church to look a certain way, for your leaders to have certain roles or responsibilities, for your pastor to preach a particular sort of sermon, then you fear and follow the church. God is calling us to be different, and it's risky. And it's the risk that often pulls fear in us, the unhealthy kind. 
God is calling you to fear him, just him, to follow him, to believe that he is better, to trust his vision for your life, that that is better, to allow the fact that his timing and his purposes and his plans and his relationships will look different than what we envision for ourselves, sure, but it will be better. So for the rest of our time today, uh, we're just going to uh, trace what that different life looks like in God's eyes, where our human fears will tend to mess things up and what we can do about it, if anything. So, verse 2. You guys with me? I promise you the bulk of what, we, what we're talking about was that. The rest of it is just we're going to start flying from there, right? It's blessings, right? Fast lane. We're going to fast lane through this now. Verse 2, his descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. First, the fearer of Yahweh will have his needs met. God will meet the needs of the God-fearer. Always. Now, before I put it out there that God is just all about making you healthy and wealthy, that is not what this is. Because, again, blessing is not us bending God to our desires, but God bending us toward his. So that, when we experience that reorientation of our lives, that realignment of ourselves toward God's will, that changes our view of the constructs of wealth and riches, what we find valuable and where we find contentedness. I tell you what, I have often marveled at the material goods of some people and and even envied them sometimes. I will confess that. And yet, the more time I spend with those who, who, in, who possess great wealth, their lives seem hurried, rushed, impossible even, and frustrating. And likewise, I have marveled at those who look to have nothing, who do not possess more than they need, and they are the happiest people I know because they have been freed to go wherever God says go. Now, that's, that, that does not mean you have to be poor in order to be where God wants you to be, nor do you have to be rich to be not where God wants you to be. What I'm saying is that your material Possessions do not determine your contentedness one way or the other. It matters not. God gives you what you need to do what he wills every time. The wealthiest people that I have ever met do not have the riches that the world would envy, but they are rich. 
their relationship with the Most High God is thriving. And sometimes when I have sat in materially rich homes, I am humiliated by my own relative poverty. Their contentedness or discontentedness wears off on me and leads me to likewise become content or discontent in the same way. And yet when I sit in spiritually rich homes, I am not humiliated, but I am humbled by their hunger for th- and thirst for righteousness. And rather than going off and trying to say, how can I be like them? I am just simply inspired to join them. When you are bent toward the desires of God, your ways are God's ways, and your definition of wealth changes. You need less, and so you have more. And what you want, you will find. Verse 4. Light shines in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. Darkness here is not a deterrent for the God-fearer because the light of God is greater. The glory of God is brighter. When you reflect the image of God, when you are are, are reoriented, realigned to receive Him and to reflect His goodness, then who God is determines where you go and how you live and what you seek. So what do you become then when you follow Yahweh? What does it look like to be someone who is blessed? You become gracious, compassionate, righteous. How is Yahweh described in Psalm 111? Gracious, compassionate, righteous. We talk a lot in the church about pursuing Christ-likeness. And that's this really churchy word that means we aim to reorient our lives and relationships around the person of Jesus, and in doing so, we become more like him. And sometimes that can take two divergent paths that are kind of off the main road here. Some argue that becoming like Jesus means that you obtain the power to do miracles and and you have power and you gain control over an unwieldy world. Now, if God's Spirit lives within you, that is truth, but it is not the goal. That is true, but it is not the goal. Others argue that becoming like Jesus means you become more holy, that that you do less and less wrong, and that you have a right way of doing things and right ideologies and the best morality. And if the Holy Spirit lives in you, then much of that is true, but it is not the goal. The goal of Christ-likeness is to reflect the person of Christ in the world. 
And that means exactly this. That the way the world sees you is not magical nor moral, but gracious, compassionate, righteous, generous, just, faithful. Who you are becomes who he is. And it's that simple. Who you are becomes who he is. And that will become the definition of what people think about when they think about God. Because they are looking at you, O Christian, the one who claims the name of Christ as your very identity. They are looking at you to reveal the nature and purpose of this Jesus. And how you communicate with that with your life, it will either be good news, open highway, carpool lane type of news, or it will be devastating, terror-inducing, stalled-out-in-traffic type of news. The one who is bent towards the will of God, whose life has been shaped and changed and characterizes, has light that floods through the darkness and allows safe travel. To fear God is to follow behind the light of God. Verse 6, he will never be shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident, trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured he will not fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He will never be shaken. When we first moved to Sacramento, we were down to one car, and um, we, needed, we needed a simple, cheap commuter just to get from point A to point B. I had to get to work, and it, we just needed something simple. And so our, our friends who lived down there, they graciously and generously gave us their 1995 Toyota Tercel to use, for that trip, and we lovingly nicknamed it the turtle. And we called it the turtle because it was green. And uh, second of all, we called it the turtle because anytime it went over 45 miles an hour, it started rattling and shaking and thundering on the inside. And, and it's, it's like it was telling me as I'm driving, look, I'm not meant to go this fast. You ought to slow down, sir. Now, I'm no automobile aficionado in any way, but I know when I need to fear for my life when a car is not doing what it's supposed to be doing, and this car was not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Now, the kids look back on that memory fondly. They miss the turtle. But I don't, because when it eventually caught on fire as I was driving it, I, was, I, I decided I was done. I said, I'm good with this. I, the memories are gone. I have no more happy memories. This car can burn. I am totally good with that. 
that was an example, this is an example of, for me, what it looks like when your life is shaken by something that is not meant to be doing what it is supposed to be doing, and it causes a fear within you, an uncertainty, an anxiety that this is not going to end well. The psalmist says, however, those who fear Yahweh, those who follow after him, who are molded and shaped in his image, they will never be shaken. They will sit securely in eternal relationship with the Father and with his children. I love this. He says, the one who fears Yahweh will not fear. His heart is assured. He will not fear. So if you fear, you will not fear. That makes sense, right? In other words, following Yahweh and and lining up your hopes and your dreams and desires with him, this removes the hopes and the dreams and desires that you have for other things. You cannot fear God in one area and fear something else in the same area at the same time. And and yet, even as I, as I speak that truth out, as I'm reading that and saying his heart is confident, he trusts in the Lord, his heart is assured, he will not fear, I, I sometimes wonder how exactly true that is in reality. So it sounds good here, but what does that look like often? Because the reality is, yes, I think that I'm fearing God, I think that I'm following God, and yet there's all kinds of things that I'm afraid of. I'm afraid for my family. I'm afraid for our country. I'm afraid for our homes. I I fear for my job. I fear for my health or my family's health. Fear for our church. And the reason I think why we do this is that we know that these things are not forever. We know that they can go at any time. But there have been moments of safety and security. There have been moments of fulfillment and peace, however fleeting, that tempt us and tease us into fighting for them, following them, fearing for them, and hoping against hope that God does not take them away. When our car was shaking and rattling and thundering within, most of the time I was thinking, I can't wait to get out of this thing. But yet I drove it into the ground because I knew if I don't drive this car, I have to take our only car that strands my wife and and the kids. So this brings me comfort and peace and, and fulfillment in some way. As shaky as it truly is, There was some sense where I relied on that to bring me happiness in other areas. We hope against hope that God does not take those fleeting moments away from us. And that is not us bending toward God. That's us straining and striving to bend God toward us instead. 
What are those things that you need to be handing over today? What needs to be given to God so that you can sing with all honesty as the hymn goes, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Verse 9, he distributes freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. And the psalmist ends this, this portion of the psalm by saying that the one who fears God is generous, faithful, and filled with honor. And honor here is the same word for glory, kavod. This significance and weight of your, of your nature and your character. The person who fears Yahweh is filled with glory. Now here's what I gain from all of this. Your happiness, your blessings, your prosperity, your sense of of thriving is directly proportional to the degree with which your life is aligned with the character and nature and will and purposes of God. The glory that fills you is ultimately proportional to that. Your glory in that way When you are aligned with the wills and purposes of God, when you are lined up with the nature and character of God, when God is generous, you are generous because God is compassionate, you are compassionate. When God is righteous, you are righteous. When God speaks truth, you speak truth. When God is forgiving, you are forgiving. When God is just, you are just. And so when that happens, your glory is His Glory. Your generosity is His. Your enduring righteousness is His enduring righteousness. John Piper has this almost like a motto that has defined and shaped his entire ministry, and it is that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. God's glory, that glorifying Ness is the revelation of everything that he is. It is his nature. It is his character. It is his work. And he reveals that in himself and through his son, Jesus. But he also reveals it through those that surrender everything to him. So, to be satisfied in him means you are okay with your life not being your own anymore, but being his. Your kids are his, your car is his, your neighbors are his, your money is him, your skills and abilities are his, your emotions are his, your thoughts are his, your conversations are his. Everything you are and everything that you have is his, and that is the best news that you have ever heard in your life. When you are satisfied with Christ, 
when you are happy to follow and fear, you will be weighted down not by the expectations of God, but you will be weighed down in security with the kavod of God, with the glory of God. And you will reflect that and only that to the world. The psalmist ends with this warning of sorts. And he says, verse 10, The wicked one, the Ra, will see it and be angry. He will gnash his teeth in despair. The desire of the wicked leads to ruin. David says, The one who fears God, he is generous. He's kind. He, God lights his way. He has what he needs. He, he is gracious and compassionate with others. He gives of everything that he has because he only needs what God has given him, and he has given him more than enough to be generous with that. But David says there is another, one who does not fear Yahweh, who does not follow, who has desires that are not Yahweh's desires. And that person will be angry and frustrated and depressed and destroyed. I will say this. I will say that trusting in God, knowing that I am going, when, on the, when I am in those moments where I know that I am going where God is leading, where I am, I am listening, where I am waiting, the steps that I am taking are the steps that he has directed. I have never been led into anxiety and worry and fear. It is only when the fear of man gets mixed in that I begin to feel shaken in my soul. The fear of God does not lead me to worry or anxiety. The fear of man does constantly. I am not afraid of going where God leads us to go. I am afraid of losing friends. I am not afraid of going where God leads us to go. I am sometimes a bit fearful of the changes that that will cause people and the hardships that may place and the concerns that they may have. I am not worried to spend uh, our budgets and our money as God directs us and leads us. I get a little fearful when sometimes our budgets don't meet our own versions of how we think it all should go. Learning to fear God is something that as leaders we are, we are taking a crash course in. For sure. We are learning this as we go. We are learning to walk and hear God's direction and walk in it when the temptation that we sometimes have is to hear our voices and run towards those instead. Only to stop in our tracks when another voice comes in, divides and dissents and discourages, and we stop and we do not move. A wise friend recently shared that very often we do not see God's plans come to fruition in our lives and in our community because we 
ourselves get in the way. Our concerns and our fears and our worries. We do not worry about what God is leading us to do. We worry about how we will react in the midst of it. We cease to move toward God's will and plan for us because that's a risk. And we consider what we might lose to be perhaps more valuable than what we will surely gain in the process. We cease to move toward God's will and his plan for us when we consider what we might lose to be more valuable than what we will surely gain as a result. So do you want a life that is full of happiness and thriving and and blessing and encouragement? You fear God and not fear man. Do you want to thrive as a church? Fear God and not man. Fearing God leads to flourishing and blessing and thriving exactly as God intended for it to be. Fear of man leads to cursing and hindrance and obstruction and an existence that is technically human, but narrowly so. Fear within us can lead to unbelief, the the terrifying kind, the unhealthy kind, can lead to unbelief. And unbelief leads to gravitating toward anything and everything that might provide relief, comfort, assurance, and security, however fleeting that may be. And that gravitating bends us away from the happy straightness that comes when our relationship with God comes first. And so we become hunched over, lopsided, twisted. The Bible calls this avon, iniquity. And it will ultimately crush you. But here's the thing. God shows time and time again that it is worth, that he is worth following with everything that you are and everything that you have. To fear anything else means that you will follow anything else but him. But to fear God means that you follow him. But that takes a risk. Are you willing to give up that which you think you need to receive everything you could ever want? Where is there a fear of man that needs to be replaced with the fear of God? What I'm going to ask is that as we close our time together, we would just take those those things that God lays on our hearts to him as we pray and as we sing our last song together. Father, the idea of fearing you is foreign to our lips and our minds. And yet, I am struck by how timely, how important, how worthwhile it is to develop a good and healthy fear of you. A trust that you are worth following. 
that you are safe and secure, that you will never let us down. Help us, Father, when we struggle with believing that. Help us when we struggle when we lean towards safety and security that tempts us elsewhere, that leads towards despair and frustration. God, show us where we need to let go, to take a risk, to fear you and you alone. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the journey that you have placed us on as we walk together. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you stand with us?